Turn please to 1 Timothy in chapter 3. 1 Timothy in chapter 3, please. I'm going to read the first 13 verses. I'm only going to speak to the first seven. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, please. Hear the word of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to any wine, too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Timothy, now Paul to Timothy uh, takes uh, not a turn really, but, but now we begin to speak about those who lead in the context of the life of the church, elders, deacons. Deacons lead in areas of service. Elders oversee uh, everything in the life of the church. And so Paul begins to line that out. I want to speak to that this morning just from these first seven verses in First Timothy uh, chapter 3. And we see that what Paul's writing about here is consistent with his theme, and really carrying over uh, that which he has been talking about. Consistent with his theme. You remember his theme is in verse 15 of chapter 3. Uh, Paul says, If I delay, that is, he had hoped to come, but if he delays in coming, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So Paul is writing to Timothy saying, All right, you're the pastor of the church, you're young. I want to tell you how it is that you're to, 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 to organize, if you will, the church so that you and people in the church know how they're to conduct themselves, how they're to behave. And so that's what Paul's been doing. And, and he mentioned that the church, obviously, is a, is a pillar and support, a pillar of but, a, a but, and buttress of the truth. And so, so clearly he's, he's concerned about what's being taught. And so you remember in the opening of verses of chapter 1, Paul talks to Timothy about dealing with that which is, is, is not true, that which the teachers are teaching, that which is false. And so Timothy deals with all of that, or is to deal with all of that. No surprise there. No surprise either that he begins to talk to to Timothy about how the church is to conduct itself when it gathers. And so in chapter 2 we see that that Timothy is is told by Paul uh, about the gathering church. And he says, first and foremost, when the church gathers, the church is to pray. 
because of the very heart of God that people will be saved, that people will come to know uh, that which is true about God through our Lord Jesus Christ and the trust in him. So he says, so you need to pray. And then, interestingly, Paul begins to shake out in this assembly, this gathering of the church, um, um, differences, if you will, between men and women. And he, and he talks to men first, and he says, men, I want you to pray. You get a sense, perhaps lead the congregation in praying. Doesn't the women can't pray, don't pray. But you get the sense that there's something about praying in men here. He says, I want men to pray, and I want you to pray lifting holy hands. That is, I want you to show men that you're utterly dependent upon, upon Christ when you come into the assembly. That it shouldn't be a surprise, it shouldn't be a secret. This isn't a macho thing where you can do it yourself, but but when you come into the assembly men, it needs to be certain that you too are utterly dependent upon Christ. And so I want you to lead in prayer. And I don't want you to be quarreling or angry with each other. You need to be unified. This is something that you do as you come together. We pray our Father. And you lift holy hands because you're to, to, to acknowledge the fact that you too need to be cleansed. And thus you come before the Lord as one trusting in Christ for your cleansing. And and then he speaks to women. And he speaks to women about their dress first. And he says that women need to be addressed appropriately. We took this up on Wednesday evening, this past Wednesday evening. Uh, Women need to be addressed appropriately, not showing off their wealth and not showing off their bodies. But rather, if they're going to show off anything, it ought to be showing off godliness. And so he said that's the way women should come into the assembly. That doesn't mean that men get to show off wealth or their bodies when they come. But obviously there was something here in the context of the church in Ephesus that that Paul speaks to the women of that congregation. And perhaps, I don't know, maybe this is more of a woman thing. I don't even want to go there. Uh, But in terms of dress and, and so forth. And so Paul addresses that and we receive that as well as instruction from him. He also says something profound that women in this congregation are to learn. That is, they're to be disciples of Jesus as are the men. They're to learn. And they're to learn in a particular way. In fact, it's the way we all learn in quietness and submission to teachers. To learn, you need to be able to listen and respect a teacher. And so he says to women, you're to learn, you're to know everything there is to know about God. And you uh, are to be a full disciple of the Lord Jesus. But then Paul speaks to something else in the closing verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, we took this up on Wednesday evening. And he he says that that, that it's men who are to have authority in the church. And when he When he says that, he isn't saying that women are inferior in any way or men are superior. All are created in the image of God. But what he's saying is that there's a difference because he cites creation. He said that Adam was created first, then Eve. And and by that, he means at creation, it was God's determination, it was God's ordination in making Adam first and giving Adam certain responsibilities in the garden that men were to be the ones who were to be overseers. Men are to be the ones who were to have authority in the context of, as we saw, as we've seen through the scripture, in family and in church. And thus it doesn't surprise us in family that when Paul and others write concerning family, he says, husbands, you're the head, wives to submit. So we see that there and here in, in the end of chapter 2. He says he doesn't permit uh, a woman to have authority over a man, most especially in this area of doctrinal teaching, this area of overseeing the doctrine and life 
of the church. Again, not because she's inferior, but simply because that's God's way at creation in order to uh, structure family and church. Men and women were made complementary, to complement one another. And so God says that Adam being created first in creation was to have this authority. Eve, he says, was deceived in the garden. It doesn't mean that women are more easily deceived. It just simply means that she was put into a place in the garden that wasn't hers to be. Adam should have intervened. Adam was the one who was given responsibility in that situation. And so uh, it's always referred to as the sin of Adam. There's no feather in his cap that Eve was deceived and he wasn't. It simply means she was deceived and he knew better. And he was the one to be in that place. And he wasn't. And when he was put in that place, he abdicated. And that was sin. And so, um, but he still... The point is, Paul says, I want men to lead in the context of the congregation. Now he says, for women, it doesn't mean that you had left out at creation. You have been given the gift of bearing children. We know that all, not all women are able to bear children physically. Not all women marry. Nor are all men in positions of authority. Some men never marry, therefore never heads of households. Some men are never chosen, never called by God to be elders in the life of the church, so therefore don't have that kind of authority in the life of the church. But Paul's point was simply simply this, that women and men are different at creation, and therefore we need to embrace that and live out the order that God has given to us. And so then carrying on then, you get the sense that Paul's thinking about authority and thinking about leadership. And so he's saying, oh, by the way, I need to tell you about elders. I need to tell you about the men who are to lead. And so then he enters into this section in 1 Timothy chapter 3 on the heels of that to speak concerning, to speak concerning elders. And you'll notice in the opening verses here, verse 1, he says, this, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseers, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be. So he's talking about overseers. He's talking about those who look over, look after, watch the life of the church. Now, the Greek word here, I'll just give it to There's two, actually. Um, um, translated overseer in this uh, opening couple of verses. Um, And it's a word that I think you'll be uh, familiar with, the word episkopa and the word episkopos. Some have translated that bishop. We understand that in the context of being one who might be an episcopalian. So you can already see debates about church government here from, uh, from, from the scriptures. But episkopos is an overseer. Uh, part of the word uh, skopos means scope. Someone who, who looks after, looks over and watches. Not in a disinterested way, not like you would go in mall, you know, people watch at the mall kind of thing and just sort of, you know, criticize people. But, 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 but somebody who's watching interestedly to care for another. As a parent watches their kid on the playground kind of thing, you're looking with interest to watch and to guard and to protect and to enjoy and all those kinds of things as your child's playing on the, on, on, on the playground. And in the same way, says that, 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 that these overseers watch uh, people in the church uh, to care for them because they're interested in them 
and they're interested in their souls. But even as, as Paul uses this word episcopal, episcopos, bishop, overseer kind of person, uh, there seems to be some other words that he uses interchangeably. For instance, in chapter 5 and verse 17, he, 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 he talks about elders. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That word for elder is the word presbuteros, by which we get the word presbyterian. Presbuteros in its, in its guts simply means old. Um, recently I was at my optometrist and he said I have something called presbyopia, which means old eyes. He's been telling me that since I've been 40, but, but, but it, I didn't think I was so old then, but now it's starting to fit even more. But, but, uh, but, but it means old, and, and it, this doesn't simply mean that, that elders are old men. It means that elders have the wisdom of old men. Timothy was a young man, and yet he was in the context of an elder. Uh, and so the point is that an elder is someone who has the wisdom of someone who is older. I don't know if you remember, if you've ever watched the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. But Peter Bailey, the dad in the movie, was talking once uh, concerning to his son George. And he refers to George as to one who was born older. Meaning that he's just even as a, as a, as a high school student, as a college student, as a young man, he, he had the wisdom, the, the demeanor of someone who was older. We know men like that. So men who are young, who are like that can be elders. Men who are old, who are like that can be elders. But these ones who, who are, uh, are elders. And then uh, we see it even more clearly in, in Titus in chapter 1. If you just turn over a few pages in your Bibles, in Titus in chapter 1, Paul speaking of elders uh, there as well. And he uses elders. Elders and overseers, all in the same in the same context. So he uses presbyteros and episkopos, uh, all in the same uh, breath. In Titus chapter one verse five, Paul writes to Titus. He says, "This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders." Presbyteros, elders, presbyters, in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, that is an episcopos, uh, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And so he's, 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 he's using elders and overseers and kind of in the same breath. And so you get the sense that elders are those who oversee. In Greek, the presbyteros are the ones who episkopos, all right? The, the elders oversee. At least that's the way Presbyterians understand it, all right? And so, so trying to grapple with this with our Episcopalian brothers and sisters, where we're trying to, 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 to be true to the scriptures. And so for us, this is, how, this is why we exist. We, we understand this, that elders uh, oversee so that elders and overseers, same person, same office, one simply describes the person, one describes what that person does in overseeing. But then there's another word that is thrown in with these two as well. We can see it in a couple of different places as well. In Acts in chapter 20, um, Paul uh, is, is traveling and he doesn't think... He's going to ever make it to Ephesus again. Ephesus is where Timothy was, so kind of ties it all together. And so he uh, calls for the elders who are at Ephesus... 
to come and meet him in a town called Miletus. So Paul's traveling through. He's in Miletus. is close to Ephesus. And so he says, I, I don't know that I'm going to get to Ephesus on this trip or ever, so I want to still talk to the elders of Ephesus. And so he calls them up. So in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, we read this. Now from Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders, presbyteros, elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, blah, blah, and he talks to them. And then later... In verse uh, 28, he's speaking to them uh, very particularly about their work as elders in Ephesus. And he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Right? Okay. He's, so these are elders who, episcopos, these are presbyteros, people who, uh, who, who, episcopos, who oversee. And then this word to care, which is another word in Greek, poimen, which means, poimeno, which means to pastor, to shepherd. And so we see here, as Paul's putting all this kind of together in this office, if you will, this, this leadership group, these men who lead the church, and they're to be old and wise so that they can rightly oversee or look after the congregation with the purpose of caring for them, of shepherding the sheep. And that's the very point. Peter uses the same language as well in First Peter uh, and, uh, and, and chapter 5 and verse 1. Uh, Peter writes, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. And so Peter is saying, I'm a presbyteros too. I'm an elder too. As an apostle, I'm an apostle, yes, but I'm also an elder. And so I'm a fellow elder. And so Peter's writing to the elders of the churches that have been scattered, as he puts it in, the, in his salutation, his opening expressions as he writes this letter. He's writing to these various churches, and he's saying, now to you elders of these various churches, I'm writing to you as a fellow elder. I'm just one of you. In that sense, I'm just like you. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a, and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker and the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd... All right? Pastor, shepherd, care for. Shepherd, same word that we read before in um, Acts chapter 20. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion and so forth and so on. So I, I just run through all of that to show that when we talk about elders, we're talking about those who have the, the task of overseeing the life of the church and those that overseeing is a caring for the life of the church. Now, in First Timothy in chapter 5, Paul sort of delineates two aspects of this caring, and we'll come back to this later, but just so you'll see, in verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, Timothy writes, or Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. I think in the NIV it says like this, Let the elders who direct the affairs of the church, who rule well. That isn't a legislative kind of rule. That isn't a making rule so that the church obeys in that sense. It's a shepherding ruling. It's an overseeing of the life of the church with a goal that people's souls are being maintained. People's souls are being cared for. So he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who 
labor in preaching and teaching. And so you see that distinction. You have those who rule well, and then you have these other elders who preach and teach. Now, in our tradition, just a little trivia for you, it's more than that, it's how we're structured, is that we have ruling elders and teaching elders. So those of us like me uh, and Chad and Rick Soon and so forth have done the whole seminary thing and been evaluated uh, on that level. Uh, We're the teaching elders and the other elders are ruling elders. Now, we're all together. Uh, Len is another teaching elder in our congregation because of his uh, um, status with us as a denomination. And so as, as teaching elders, we primarily teach, but we also rule. As ruling elders, they primarily rule, although they also teach. And so you see that all together, that kind of, um, of, of group of men who oversee the life and the ministry uh, of the church. Now, this really shouldn't surprise us. That there are elders who, who guide the church. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll read this expression more than a hundred times. The elders of Israel. The, you know, the old men, the wise ones of Israel. And so if there's any big deal going on in ancient Israel, and there had to be a conference of something, decision being made, the elders of Israel were called together in order to make that decision. And so when Paul began planting churches, it, it was natural for him, supernatural to him, it was the very revelation of God to him, in order to um, uh, uh, appoint elders. For instance, in Acts chapter 14, this is Paul's first missionary journey, he's, he's just um, uh, planting churches, churches, and uh, we read this at the end of this journey in, 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 in Acts chapter 14, verse 21. Uh, Luke writes, when they had preached the gospel, that is Paul and Barnabas, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must, must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In other words, this is a summary statement, Luke says. And you know, when they planted these churches, they just didn't abandon them when they left. They stayed long enough to identify leaders, men who could be elders, who could oversee, who could shepherd those people, shepherd those congregations. And then in chapter 15, just right after that, there's a dispute that's going to need to be settled. And the dispute deals with the work of Paul and Barnabas and and planting these churches among Gentiles. How could that be? And and so the big question was, well, well, what about these these non-Jewish converts to Jesus? And and how do we receive them? And how are they a part of us and all of that? And so there's a council that takes place in Jerusalem. And so Paul and Barnabas come and, and the apostles are there, but they also called for the elders of the church to come. So you see the responsibility that these elders take. And then I've already read to you out of Acts chapter 20 later on, uh, clearly in Ephesus there were elders established and so, so Paul is able to call for them. It was, it was a, uh, a very normal kind of, of church organization of elders overseeing the life of the church. When Paul writes his letters, for instance, when he writes to the church in Philippi, he addresses the elders, the overseers of the church. When Paul speaks to the care of the congregation, sorry, when James writes in his epistle of care of the congregation, he says that if you're sick, call for the elders of the church to pray for you because they've been specially chosen by God, ordained by God for the ministry of caring for your soul. So when you're sick, you need to have them pray for you. That's why we have elders every Sunday after the services to pray for you. 
Um, we get into the new sanctuary, since it's going to be four miles from the sanctuary to where the elders presently pray, we're actually just going to pray right there in the, in the sanctuary. So the elders will come forward at the end of the service, and they'll kind of take their places. On, we've got some funny little current pews, and they'll, they'll be up there, and while everybody else is leaving and talking and so forth and so on, you can just form lines if you want to have the elders pray for you. It's just a, a good time of that kind of thing. That's what elders are to do, to care for the souls of people in the congregation, uh, I, I read to you from First Peter in chapter five, as Peter speaks of of being one of the one of the elders. He he speaks of that in the context again of of caring for souls. But but Peter was familiar with elders. It wasn't just a Paul thing. It was a it was a James thing and a, and, and 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 the Apostle Peter's thing too. Everybody uh, spoke of 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 elders. In fact, uh, as the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews in chapter 13. He too writes uh, of, of elders and he puts it like this. Hebrews uh, chapter 13 verse 17. He writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch, overseers, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be no advantage to you. You see... Having elders, having overseers, having shepherds is an advantage to us. Again, shouldn't be a surprise to us. God is orderly. When God orders our lives, he always gives us leaders. In the context of society, if you read through Romans chapter 13, for instance, he tells us that we're to submit to those who are in authority over us. And there Paul's referring to those who are in civil government, if you will. That that God has established, ordained civil governments in order to, to maintain peace. And to ensure justice. Now, it doesn't always happen, but, but that's why God is ordained. But, but the plan of God in culture, if you will, in society, is to ordain those who can lead us. And so there's a sense in which we submit to them. It's not an absolute submission. There isn't absolute submission in anything in our lives other than directly to Christ, we know. But this derived authority, authority that's been given to civil leaders, we're to submit to them. That's, that's the way God orders life in the family, there's, there's an order. That's why it shouldn't surprise us when, 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 when we read in the family that there's a head and there's one to submit. And we understand what it means to be head. It isn't to lord that authority. It isn't to be that way in civil government either. It isn't to lord authority, but, it, but it's to be there as a servant leader, as Christ is. So we see order in the family. So it shouldn't surprise us again that we see order in the context of the life of the church. God is saying, this is how I want to help you. I'm going to give you, all of you, I'm going to give you shepherds. I'm going to give you overseers. I'm going to give you elders who will look after your souls and help you in that, in that regard. That will be uh, an advantage to you. And, and, and what these elders are to do is... To shepherd. It was a great crisis in ancient Israel. And the crisis in ancient Israel was that the shepherds that God had given to them were not functioning as real shepherds. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the shepherds can be used for both those that we would call the elders of Israel, but also the kings, those in authority over people, because there was an enmeshment between 
civil government and, and, the, and the, the spiritual realm of ancient Israel because it was a theocracy. And so the kings were very much, should have been very much elders as well. And so the shepherds of Israel, including the kings, were not shepherding well. And so in Ezekiel chapter 34, there's this great indictment that God brings against the shepherds of Israel. For instance, it goes like this. He says, the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with, the for- and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth and none to search or to seek for them. And so from that we can discern a great deal about what elder shepherds overseers are to do we realize that they're to strengthen the weak that's what shepherds do to make sure the weak ones among us are strengthened and helped so the children are taught so the new ones among us are taught well so that the ones challenged by great catastrophe and great difficulty are shepherded and helped through those great times of difficulty, that the weak are strengthened, the sick are healed, that is cared for. We don't heal, obviously, but that's why the word came to the people uh, in the days of James. That's why James brought it to say, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church to pray. The injured, you've not bound up. Again, a, a metaphor for those who are spiritually hurt. And he says, if you find someone in spiritual difficulty, bind them up, help them. Don't just boot them out, but help them. The strayed you've not brought back for those who are wandering, those who once had been among us, those who once had made a profession of faith, and then all of a sudden we don't see them, or or, or their profession of faith begins to um, degrade in some fashion. What are we to do? Well, somebody needs to go after them. Somebody needs to call. Someone needs to visit. Someone needs to ask, hey, what's going on with your life? And so he's saying the strays you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought. You remember the great parable of the real shepherd, the one who leaves the 99 and goes after the one who was lost. And so they're scattered. And so, you see, that's essentially what these elders, the leaders among us, are really are really to do. They're to shepherd the flock. We see this uh, in this Acts chapter 20 passage. Paul writes, or Paul speaks to these elders in Ephesus. He says, pay very careful attention to yourselves. That is, you've got to watch yourselves first to make sure that you get it, that you understand, that you're holding fast to these truths, that you're walking solidly with God. He says, pay careful Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. He said, this is the value of these for whom you care. And Paul says, I know after my departure that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples uh, 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 after them. 
and to draw them away. And so you see that. He said, the great, there's great danger here. And so elders need to watch that on behalf of the people. It doesn't mean that the sheep are irresponsible. It doesn't mean that, that people in the church aren't responsible for what they believe and their behavior and all of that. And you can't say, well, the devil made me do it or the elders made me do it or something like that. You're still responsible. But the job of the elders is to, is to watch over that. And, and that, you see, is a gift to the church that has been given to us by Jesus. The Apostle Peter refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd. Uh, the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. And we read in Ephesians chapter 4 this, verse 8, Therefore it says, When Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then in verse 11 we read, And he gave, Jesus gave, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building them up to maturity, so that when difficulties come, they'll be able to stand. That's the reason for these elders. That's the reason for for these shepherds. Now the question is, what assurance do any of us have that those who are elders among us will actually benefit us and actually help us? Now, I raise that question for obvious reasons. That in the New Testament days, the days in which Paul spoke, he knew of elders who were misguiding, misleading the sheep. In fact, one of the primary reasons that Paul wrote his letters was because there was false teaching going on in the churches all over the place. And so he's saying, you need to put a stop to this. He says that the church in Galatia, if anybody teaches a doctrine differently than what I've been teaching, what the apostles have been teaching, let them be accursed. And so clearly there were those who were doing that. It was happening in Ephesus. It was happening in, in Timothy's church. And he said, these people ought not be elders. If they're elders, you need to deal with that. These people ought not be elders. They need to hold fast to that which is true. And we realize that there are elders who are elder because for all of the wrong reasons. For instance, Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. That is to say, not because you, you, you must, for some reason, put a gun to your head, but, but because you really desire to shepherd the souls of people. And he says, do it um, um, uh, not for... for shameful gain but eagerly that is you don't do it because of the money that could be in it for those of us who are paid and obviously for those who aren't not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to your flock in other words this isn't a power move in any kind of way to make yourself look good so 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 all kinds of abuses can take place and we could list them in previous generations and in our day as well and so the question as one who has elders over me people who shepherd me and you have people who shepherd you you ask the question well what assurance do I have that these shepherds are leading me in any good way at all well, churches are aware of that. In our particular tradition, we, we have what we call a plurality of elders. So there's no one elder who's the head elder. There's no one elder who sort of leads the way. There's no one elder whose word, whose word uh, trumps everyone else's. Uh, all of the elders in our church, pastors and ruling elders together, we come together, we meet together, we vote, if you will, together. And everybody has a vote. Nobody, nobody's vote means more than anybody else's vote. Uh, and uh, so none of us trump, if you will, uh, the other. But we come together and try 
try to form good, honest, real agreement, concession, and all of that. So that's a helpful thing. But but, but Paul lays out, you see, uh, maturity markers, I guess I would call them more than anything better than characteristics. Maturity markers. These things must be true of men. Now really, when you read these through, uh, these things should be true of all of us. I mean, this is not true of elders. Well, I don't, I'm not an elder, therefore I can be a lover of money. You know, or I'm not an elder, therefore I can have, you know, eight wives. Or I'm not an elder, therefore I get to be a drunkard and quarrelsome and all of that. No, 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 no. These, these maturity markers should be true for all of us. I mean, these are things that we should all desire. But these are minimum, if you will, that anyone who's an elder is, is this, at least proven himself like this in, in life. And so Paul lays these out, and I haven't the time to delineate all of these. I think they're fairly self-explanatory. But, but the first is, is often overlooked, but I think very important. Verse 1, Paul writes, This saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. He desires a noble task. Literally, it means a great work. And so anyone who, one of the things that, 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 that ensures us uh, that an overseer is, is, is worth following, if you will, is if that man understands that he's an elder, not because of the status of it, but because he desires to do the work. He desires to oversee souls because he cares for them. That's his heart. It's not the status of it. He knows it's work. He knows this will keep him up at night. He knows this will inconvenience him. He knows there are things in his own family he'll miss because he's eldering in the life of the church. And his concern is for the souls of people. He's overseeing their lives, his own life, everything. And he never has the church out of his mind. One of the most, um, I don't even know what adjective to use, helpful passages for me is this one of Paul in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11. Paul, Paul lists all the things that have happened to him. He, he speaks of, of, of his imprisonments and the, the beatings he's undergone. He, he, he talks about um, receiving... 40 lashes, five different times less one, meaning he was beaten to the point of almost death, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, uh, in danger from everything imaginable, spent sleepless nights, experienced hunger and thirst, um, exposure to the cold. And then verse 28 in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, why do you think he was anxious for all the churches? He was anxious for all the churches, it seems, and I'll show you how I get to this, because he was worried that because of his beatings, they might lose faith. And I say that because of what he writes to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians, and... uh, Chapter 3, he writes this. He says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. 
their afflictions and his own. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the temper the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, when Paul was being beaten, what he had on his mind was this. When the church in Thessalonica hears this, it might destroy their faith. Because they'll wonder, is he really an apostle? Well, they, they'll wonder, you know, why is he being beaten like this? They'll, they'll wonder. And, and Paul was more concerned about them when he's being beaten than he was about himself. He was one who greatly desired to serve the souls of others. And so, Paris and Timothy says, those are the kind of men that you want here. They're to be above reproach, that is, no one can make a case against them and all these things. They're to be the husband of one wife. It doesn't mean they couldn't be single. It doesn't mean that they couldn't be remarried. It simply means that, that this man is, is, is someone who's sexually faithful. He's a, he has sexual fidelity. He's not flirtatious. He's a one-woman kind of man. Sober-minded, self-controlled, that is, he makes good judgments. Even when those judgments affect his own life, he's still able to be balanced about what judgment should be made. Respectable, hospitable, that is, welcoming, able to teach because he needs to protect the doctrine of the church. Not a drunkard, nor a violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must be a good manager. To manage his own household is the test here. For someone who doesn't know how to manage his own household, how can he care for the church? Mustn't be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up, that is, think more of himself than he ought. (laughs) I had to laugh. Deion Sanders, some of you know him, football player. Made a profession of faith some time ago. As soon as he did, he wanted to preach. And the statement was, but before I do that, I'm going to study the Bible for a month. <laughs> we have this celebrity Christianity. C- celebrities come to faith. And I don't know about Dion, but celebrities come to faith. And all of a sudden, we want to put them up and give them a platform. Do you ever wonder why we do that? Wonder about it. Doesn't say very much about us. Because I think it's because we want to tell you that the world, see, we're not so bad. Famous people believe in Jesus too. And we want to be exalted by association. And there's always that danger, you see. That's, well, my own bias, of course, is that if you're a celebrity, we don't give you any platform for fear. You might think. It's because you're a celebrity. So if you're a celebrity in the world or celebrities come and famous people come and we ignore you, that's for your own soul, right? We just do that. That's just, a, it's just our MO. That's how we say, now you know, it's out of the bag. But uh, we do that because we don't want, we just have short little fat guys get attention. And so, uh, uh, because you see, fall into the devil's trap that is of pride. We don't want people to be filled with pride and that kills us, you see kills any who are leaders in the church. And then verse 7, Moreover, he must be well taught by outsiders so that he might fall, not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You see, the snare of the devil is that the devil wants to make Christ look bad. And thus, if there are leaders in the church who have bad reputations, and, and even the world says, we don't even do that. Look what they do. That was the problem in First Corinthians chapter 5. Wasn't an elder necessarily who was in this great sexual immorality, this sin. But Paul said even unbelievers are saying, we don't do that. 
And so you see, when we're not, have a good reputation with those on the outside. And that doesn't mean that everybody on the outside, or everybody's not a Christian, has to think we're great because they may not, they may think we're stupid because we believe in Jesus. That's another thing. But to have this reputation of being one who is godly, you see, that they even look to, and they even respect, as Peter says, that sort of shut their mouths when they're around. That's the way it should be for leaders in the church. And you see, the great um, help to us is that when leaders in the church realize, as the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews in chapter 13, this, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's, that's what should be on the mind of everyone who leads. That we're really under shepherds, that there is one, as Peter says, who is the chief shepherd. And I suppose really at the bottom line of it, that's all of our assurance. That while the shepherds that God gives to us to oversee our souls are flawed, there is one shepherd who isn't, the chief shepherd. And what all the other shepherds need to be doing is taking us to, pointing us to, speaking to us of the chief shepherd. When we get away from that, we get into trouble, you see. We get into other things other than the chief shepherd and who he is and what he's done. And we stop taking people to the chief shepherd. Then you see, the shepherd of your soul is not a good shepherd of your soul. Because the shepherd of your soul is the good shepherd who indeed, in fact, died for you. In the reading that we had this morning, it was of this one who was the good shepherd. You see, when, when God brought that great indictment against Israel and the shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 34, at the end of that chapter, God made a great promise. And that great promise was this, that I'm going to come and I'm going to be your shepherd. And so you can only imagine that when Jesus came on the scene and he said, I am the good shepherd, the bells and whistles went off on every, in every Israelite man's head going, oh my, wait a minute. God said he was going to come and be our shepherd. He would bind the brokenhearted. He's the one who would get the strays. He was the one who would save the lost. He was the one who would feed and nurture us. And this man, Jesus, is now saying he's that very one. And Jesus said, yes, I am. I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to think of myself. But I'm going to give my life. That's the real shepherd. And the good news for us is he gave his life, but he took it back up again. And then taking it back up again was for our justification. He spoke of that, Jesus did. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples as well. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And this morning as we come in the very presence of Jesus, what we're remembering is this, that he's the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. He's the great shepherd. And everything else that exists in all of the church is so that we would come to him. He's the one who said, come to me, all you are burdened, and I'll give you rest. He's the one that said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, because I'm the good shepherd. I've proven that. Because when it came down 
to leaving you over your sin and me taking all of that upon me. I didn't run. I took it. Trust me. Let's pray, Father in heaven. Pray for me, for us. That we would take full advantage of everything you've provided for us. Even shepherds of our souls. But Father, I pray that you would provide shepherds for us. That would lead us to the good shepherd. That we might receive from him. So in this morning, we hear the call of the good shepherd to come to him. And so, Father, I pray, and even now, that you would take this bread and this juice in such a way and that it would, for us, remind us of, be for us, the very presence of Jesus among us, that we might come to him with every burden and every care, that we may place before him every enemy of our souls, and that he would call us back, that he would heal, that he would strengthen, that he would feed and fill, that he would lead and guide. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.